Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a plethora of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device that you have in your hands, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. You want to go read some erotica? Go get Special Forces, Gay Military Erotica, edited by Philip McKenzie Jr. Or how about Susie's Sexy Stories by Susie Bright? Or, if you want to take a slightly different approach, how about Sex God, Exploring the Endless Connections Between Sexuality and Spirituality by Rob Bell. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people making conversation. This is subject to your approval. Thank you for tuning in wherever you happen to be. Where are you? Where do you happen to be? I do sometimes wonder about that. Uh, I see the analytics for the program. I see the statistics. And uh, I know that I have listeners in China, for example. And I have a a few listeners in Saudi Arabia, even. uh, A couple in Guam. A fairly strong contingency in Canada, uh, for example. And so for those of you joining me from uh, these various ports of call around the world, thank you for being here and tuning in. What is happening? Uh, Not a whole lot. I got 800 words today. Uh, writing, and I feel pretty good about that. I like when I get words. I like uh, when the words come easily. I like when I advance the process and uh, when my creative brain feels functional or semi-functional. So far today, I have consumed two shots of espresso and four cups of green tea. Uh, I'm not afraid to admit that. I'm fairly caffeinated. My heart is beating in a detectable way inside of my chest cavity, and the back of my neck is lightly perspiring. 
has anyone ever written a song about caffeine? That thought crosses my mind. Uh, and actually, I believe I asked that question publicly once online and uh, received several affirmative responses. It has happened, uh, and this is appropriate. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Christopher Narazny. His debut novel uh, is called Jonah Man. It is available now from IG Publishing. IG Publishing? I think it's IG Publishing. It has received uh, great acclaim. Starred reviews. It has gotten blurbs from the likes of uh, Brian Evanson, uh, Patrick DeWitt, and uh, Jonathan Evison. Uh, the book is narrated by a one-handed juggler who moonlights as a drug trafficker. Uh, how can you not like that? And so here we go, folks. This is my conversation with Mr. Narazny, and this is his conversation with me. I would need to be on Xanax, I think. Yeah, so anyway, uh, welcome into the uh, home studio. It's good to have you here. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Now, are you in town from, where are you in town from? Uh, New York. New York. I thought. Yeah. Were you in Denver? I was in Denver. Um, I'm from New York originally. I did a PhD at the University of Denver, and oh. I was there for six years. Okay. And then my wife and I just moved back to New York eight months ago. To New York City, uh, Brooklyn, which counts as part of New York City. Yeah. Right, right, right. And yeah. so that's where you're from. Like you were raised in the city. Uh, I lived in Queens till I was 14, and then we moved to Jersey. Okay. So I did high school in New Jersey, but other than that, yes. What and what prompted the move to Jersey? Just to get out of the, the crazy and into the... Uh, my parents w wanted to be able to afford a house, basically. Oh. <laughs> and it was, the first 14 years, we were in an apartment. Okay. Okay. So how was that? How was like growing up in Queens? Oh, um, that was... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I wasn't really built for it, to be <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it was a very working... Low, I would say lower working class neighborhood. I, I couldn't hit a baseball. I couldn't see. Uh, I wasn't very tough. What, what do you like, mean you couldn't see? Oh, I was literally... Um, I guess functionally blind for for quite a while before I, I got my glasses, which was, I mean, that was quite a day because the third grade teacher noticed that 
I didn't seem to be seeing properly and pulled the eye chart down in front of the entire class. And um, I, I think that pretty much sums up my experience of, of growing up in Queens. Wow. It was... Yeah. So you just like I mean when you say functionally blind like because I have good eyesight I mean it's, I'm sure like in the next few years because I'm getting up there in age like it's going to start <laughs> to go when I read at least right that's what happens but I don't know mine went right away so yeah <laughs> so does this mean when you looked at a book as a young kid like could you could you see the words like were you was it things in the distance that were giving you trouble uh, the distance was worse yeah if I held the book up close to my face I could see it okay um, and well enough certainly to fool people for about seven years. And then eventually you got some proper eyewear. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, without my contacts or without my glasses, I would, I can't see a thing. And then, so how did that, so you, you were not an athlete, uh, was the athleticness or is that, is that a word? Athleticness? <laughs> it is now. Was the lack of uh, participation in sports due to uh, vision or were you also just not interested in it or were you not interested in it because you couldn't see? Oh, I was interested in it. I mean, it was sort of the way to fit in at the, at the time. And we, uh, it's funny, too, because we happen to have a really, really good Little League team. And I think I would have been an okay player on any of the other teams, you know, if the zoning had just been a little different. But I happened to be on this team of all-stars. Right. Um, and I was horrible. And, and uh, it, it was a combination of nerves and eyesight, I think. Yeah. Well, it doesn't help. I mean, if you can't see and they're throwing... I mean, I was. I remember playing baseball when I was a kid, and uh, when it got to fast pitch and my kids were actually throwing pitches at you, I remember being frightened by the speed of it. Because, like, some of yeah. these kids did, they had no control, and, like, people are getting hit with the baseball, and then everyone's watching you try to hit, and it's just like... I, I found it to be sort of, like, pressure-filled uh, and not all that fun anymore, even though I, I really love to play baseball, you know? Yeah, well, I actually... Uh... This will tell you how bad I was. I, I broke my finger, shattered it, actually, swinging at a pitch. Um, this is probably one of the few pitches I hit all year. Uh, and um, Would the ball hit your hand? Yeah, the ball hit my hand, and it shattered my left index finger. Holy cow. Um, so, so badly that they almost thought they were going to have to amputate, but uh, but they didn't, thankfully. And still a little crooked. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, and how old, was, how old were you when this happened? Probably around tw- 12, 11 or 12. Okay. So, so when you moved, I mean, moving at the age of fourteen, uh, that's not an easy age to move, right? So, like, that's good. or did you <laughs> no, not you're really, care? You're really testing my memory here. No, I, I cared, but for a different reason. I'd actually found something that I was good at. Um, I was really good at karate. Uh, I was really into it. Um, we found this this guy. It was sort of uh, maybe to this day the best teacher I've ever had in anything. Um, and we just picked him out of the yellow pages. I mean, he just happened to be there in, in Queens. Um, what was his name? Toyotoro Miyazaki. Awesome, and so and you and so you got you got this guy to start teaching you karate, and you just uh, well, he had a school. I mean, he didn't sort of uh, just take me under his wing. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, see, I wanted it to be like a solo tutoring thing. Oh, that would have been such a better story, but yeah, no, okay. it wasn't that way. Although we got along very well. Yeah, how old was this guy? Was he like an? Uh, was he up in age, or was he? Okay, I, you know, I, I thought he was old, but looking back, I think he's younger. He was younger than I am now. Okay, um, so you know, I, I think he was in his mid thirties at the time. All right. And um, so he, you started taking karate and immediately took to it. Yeah, it was a great place to go. And it was, it was a great segue out of baseball. And it, it, I mean, it was sort of the opposite of the experience that I'd had in little league. Sort of everybody was supportive. Um, you know, the, the teacher wasn't a dick. It was, uh, am I allowed to st- yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, it was, it was just a completely different experience. Plus I got to take the bus by myself for the first time, which was exciting. Um, you know, the public bus. Uh, so, yeah, it was all around a great experience. So at, at that point, I, I actually didn't want to move. Um, yeah. Well, but and I feel like, too, like you would, it would be, 
the kind of thing that would instill confidence to know that you can defend yourself. Like even today, like I wish if I were like a black belt in karate, I think <laughs> it would change the way I moved around in the world. No? Well, uh, to a certain degree, but when you're 12, a lot of the people who are bothering you are still much, much bigger than you. Yeah. And you didn't feel more, you didn't feel you could, you could, uh, subdue them. <laughs> uh, probably not. No. I, I mean, I, I mean, I think I felt more comfortable in my own skin because I'd, I'd found something physical that I was good at. I mean, I'd, I'd been good at reading and writing and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it boosted my confidence level to, to a certain degree, but I, I don't think I had any illusions about, you know, someone attacking me on the street and my being able to you know, take them out. I mean, that was, that was never going to happen. And then what about, uh, but like, what about, uh, like your belt ranking and stuff? Did that matter? Were you like competing to try to get like the black belt? Did that factor in or was it just fun to go practice? And well, yeah, that was another reason I probably didn't want to move. I mean, I got up to, I think brown belt with a certain number of stripes. So I, I wasn't that far off. And, um, you know, then when, when we moved, there weren't really any good schools around. I, I would mention this guy's name. He had just finished competing. Um, uh, Sensei Miyazaki, and everybody knew everybody who knew anything about karate knew who this guy was. I mean, he was super famous in that arena, uh, and I just couldn't find anybody that I liked as well, and so that sort of petered out once so I got in, to New Jersey. And you haven't practiced since? Well, no, but I couldn't now if I, I wanted to, because a couple of years after that, I actually had to have back surgery. Oh, no idea if it was related to the karate. I, they have no idea what caused it, but I had a, a herniated disc. Oh, my God. Where? Like, which which part of your spine? Uh, the very base of my spine. Oh, man. See, I have a low back thing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you, you fully had to have back surgery. Like they oh, went, yeah, They yeah, went yeah. in there and, what, removed the disc? Is yeah, that... yeah. Which I think they say they wouldn't do now with yeah. somebody that young. No, it's like I've heard, because I've, you know, I've gone through all this stuff with the different kinds of doctors about, um, you know, what to, how to treat, and I've just often heard that you should resist cutting on your back at, unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, this, at this point, this was like 20 years ago, so... Did it fix it? Yeah. Oh, it did? Well, I mean, there's some things I can't do. I can't run, I can't jump. Any, anything that involves sort of heavy contact, I can't do. But other than that, yeah, it's been fine. Oh, God. Okay, so uh, so you moved to Jersey. You're no longer taking karate. You have a herniated disc. You're meeting new people. You're writing now. At this point in your life, are you already into books? Yeah, I was very into books then. I'm not sure that I was writing... With any kind of serious intent. Um, that that probably happened later. I think that that happened when I was around 25 or 26. But did you know internally? Like, did you know, like, this is what I'm going to do? Or was it something that you just sort of liked and didn't have really serious, concrete thoughts about? Well, it's weird. I think I knew, and then I didn't know for a while, and then I knew again. I, th I think around college, I sort of got derailed from it. But I, I would say if you went back to... You were derailed by what? Um... A good, uh, well, I got into French and traveling. I, I did my I, I went to Rutgers. I did my junior year abroad. Um, Where'd you go? And you went to France? Yeah. And I guess I just sort of got into other things. Plus, I, <laughs> I wrote some stories that were really bad and got some really sort of heavy criticism. And that, at the time, that was enough to push me off for a little while. Uh, I thought, well, all right, well, you know, maybe I'm good at reading, but not necessarily at the writing part. Right. Um, did you go? And so you, you said you got into French. So you, were, you, you were speaking French or you majored in French? Yeah, I wound up majoring in, in French. I mean, the the major thing in college is so... Uh, it's such a false distinction. I mean, I was sort of one class away from being a double major in English. You know, it's really only 30 credits. But, uh, but yeah, I was technically I was a French major. Are you fluent? 
I was at one point. It's, I mean, it's been a while. I, I think it would come back. I think it would. I, my accent was not very good, but oh. my comprehension and vocabulary at one point, yeah, I'd, I'd say I was fluent in that way. And then where, where, when you went abroad, where, where, you know, where in France were you? Uh, the first year I was in Tours. And then... Uh, where is Tours? Was that north or no? No, uh, it's like dead center if you were to... Dead center, okay. Um, then I went up to... I was in Normandy for a year. After college, I got this teaching assistantship in a high school in uh, Bayeux, which is a really tiny... T- I mean, it's pro- the whole town's probably the length of the street that you're on here. Um, but that was great. I mean, that was a lot of fun. And then uh, I went to Paris for a year after that and sort of bummed around and did some odd jobs, including babysitting and that kind of thing. Sure. The male... Male nanny. I was a male nanny, yeah. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> yeah, I was, actually. Really? So yeah. how did, t- telling that to the... Uh, how did the that customs guard at, at the border was, was very, <laughs> he laughed very hard. So what, you, you went through some agency, essentially? No, just, uh, what's that, t- that paper called? Uh, oh, the, the FUSAC? Yeah, FUSAC. Uh, th- yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. I answered an ad in the back of that. And they were, they were they specifically looking for a male nanny? Uh, they specifically didn't care. Oh, they did Most of them wanted. It seems like, pa- it seems like most parents would care. Right? Some male nanny shows up, I think people would be suspicious. <laughs> uh, well, it turns out they actually, I mean, they would have preferred a, a male. They'd had a, a female before, and, and she didn't get along very well with the boy, and they felt that he needed a, a firmer hand and a playmate. He was an only child. So. Oh, right. Um, but there were all sorts of things that they hadn't told me before I got there, like they were recently divorced, and, um, you know, the child had all kinds I mean, he was brilliant, a brilliant kid, but he had all kinds of behavioral issues. Like? Um... Like, like I couldn't get him to eat, for example. I mean, he wouldn't. They, they had this very specific menu that they wanted me to cook for him, which included French things like brain and Ugh. one night was brain, uh, another night was tongue, and then the rest, I guess, was fairly normal. Like but what it, kind of the cow tongue? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And brain. Um, but he would, you know, he would refuse to eat them and then say well, things. Well, yeah, he would. Yeah, yeah. What kid wants to eat tongue? Yeah, I know. And then he'd say things like. Uh, I'm sorry, but it's cold, and you you can't reheat tongue. Uh, you know, which I thought was pretty sharp for for a six year old. Yeah, no, that's not something you want, like as a leftover or something. No, no, no. out of the fridge. Um, but I mean, he 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 was very very sharp. He would he would repeat things that his parents had said. His father owned New York Harry's Bar, which I know it's in Hemingway stories, and you know goes way back oh, on the on the um, over in like center, central Paris, kind of. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not far from the opera. It's yeah. just off. Uh, I've been in there. That's like the, with the one with the piano in the basement. I'm not sure about that. If uh. if you paid like twenty dollars for a Coca Cola, then you were in the right place. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I probably did that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so he owned that, and his wife was a uh, lawyer, I think, for Mitterrand at, at the time. Um, so they they were mega rich, and he would pick up things that they said, like, uh, and he'd try to set me up. I mean, he'd say things like. Do you like Beaujolais? Do you like that? Do you like that? Are you excited about the new Beaujolais? And say, yeah, it's fine. Say, oh, it's paint thinner. Um, <laughs> the you know, kid would say this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he heard it from his father. He just he had just picked it up from his from his dad. Or his so, mom. what part of town were you living in? With the, were you living with these people? Uh, I was in a chambre de bonne, so I was in the maids' quarters. Um, okay, what is <laughs> which that? Which was a it was a separate studio apartment, which was actually very nice. Um, and yeah, it was in the 16th arrondissement where all the, uh-huh. the rich folk live. And it was really like a spectacular residence. Actually, it wasn't. Um, I mean, it was nice. It was very nice, but it wasn't super luxurious. But I never saw the father's apartment. And oh, that's right, they lived apart. Yeah. So you were in the mother's. I was in the yeah. The, he lived with his mother. 
Um, and then on the weekends, he would go with his father. And according to him, that was, you know, uh, the guy owned the whole building. And it was one of those deals where he had different music playing in every room, and it was all set up automatically. And, oh, my God. And that kind of thing. So I think the real wealth resided with the father. Uh-huh. And how long ago was this? How long? Like, uh, this is years ago that you did oh, this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... And were you writing then? Were you entertaining some sort of, like, expatriated literary fantasy? <laughs> Uh, who isn't at that age? Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I, I guess I was, but it never really went anywhere. And you were, and were you going out and socializing, or were you like strictly working for this family? Did you feel like your entire life was consumed? Oh no, no, it was a pretty cushy gig, really. Um, yeah, yeah, I was able to go out and you know do things and have a normal life. It's just uh, after school, basically. I mean, I, I guess I had him about three or four hours a day, so it was really pretty nice. Oh right. In that regard. Okay. And so, did you make? I mean, you, clearly you had some friends, and you were able to integrate yourself to some degree. By that point, yeah, because that was my third year in in France. So I knew people from the other two visits. Oh right. Um, so yeah, yeah. things were okay. But it is very hard. I mean, they were mostly fellow expats. Um, one thing that, as an outsider culturally like about about the french but it's, it's difficult as a, as a foreigner is that at least this was my experience they tend to know the same people uh they grew up with for their whole life and it, it makes sense when you think about it i mean the whole state's the i mean the whole country's the size of texas so i think geography plays a part in it but there are these very strong circles of friends that uh, people who literally grew up together and it's, it's hard to infiltrate it is hard to infiltrate that yeah. but it's also cultural i mean i don't feel yeah. like it's necessarily like uh, super easy for an American to walk in and suddenly become intimate friends. You know what I'm saying? It's not easy for anyone in no, any country, no. but I just feel like, and I've had, had conversations about uh, Paris in particular with other people on the show before, and it's just like culturally that city is, seems somewhat closed off. I don't know. Is that accurate, inaccurate? Uh, it seems accurate to me. I you know, I always feel like I'm just talking about my experience of it, but yeah, that, that's pretty much what it was like. Um and, and you can sense the difference when you go to, well, for example, I mean, I went to Spain for a couple of weeks when I was living in France, and you can feel that there's a, a cultural difference there, and uh, just how determined people were to talk to me, for example, even though I, I did not speak Spanish at all, whereas in France at times it could be difficult to get people to talk to you even when you did speak the language. So uh, so, so I think there is, and, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think people say that, and it, it comes off as sort of a harsh judgment on the French, and I, I don't feel that at all, but... Uh, I, I do think there's a cultural... It's kind of, you have to earn your way in a little bit more there than some other places. So what ultimately brought you back to the States? Uh, uh, it was uh, My mom had a brain tumor, actually, so I, I came back because she was having an operation. Oh, um, Jesus. Uh, yeah, it was it was benign. It was it was all good. But it, but it was also... I mean, I was ready to leave because the family was a little difficult to be around <laughs> yeah i mean i don't want to i don't want to sell them out here on your podcast but yeah it was a good time to come back in combination with some sort of stuff that was going on with my family that required me to be back and you're in the tumor was taken out no oh yeah she's fine oh wow okay that's the good kind of brain tumor yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> could be worse yeah could be much worse okay so you come back from that and then where are you in your life at that point how old are you i guess i'm 22 or 23 all right right around there yeah, and then I, we're and, doing my whole life story here. Uh, that's yeah, that's what it's about. <laughs> so, and then what? And then, like, when you come back, uh, you know, what what do you do? Did you feel lost or like at, at loose ends? Because I don't know. It just feels like a lot of times when people go abroad and they travel, it, the reentry can be a little bit rocky. Was there any of that? Uh, no, I actually think I, I, at that point felt 
ready to come back. Um, and I was excited to, I mean, because I was 22, I was going to go live in New York now. And, um, you know, that was exciting to me. I mean, that was as exciting as Paris. So right. it's not a bad idea. Yeah, it's not a bad, it's like you were going back to like Nebraska. Like to- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one nice thing about New Jersey is that it's super close to, to New York. So it's sort of an easy transition to make. So what did, so what did you do? You came back and you did what? I went to a temp agency and they sent me to a, a couple of places I barely remember. And then they sent me to a, a publishing house. They sent me to Harper Collins, um, to work on in the college academic division as an assistant. And, uh, they hired me. And so that between then and grad school was all publishing and just living in New York. Yeah. And doing that. Well, what was yeah. it like to work inside of Harper Collins? Like, did you get a window into the publishing business that you felt was instructive? No, because it was a completely different kind of book. It was uh, textbooks, basically. Um, and, and it was chaotic because it was only HarperCollins for about a week. Uh, Pearson, God, were they, I'm not sure they were even Pearson at that point. Longman, which became Longman Pearson, bought the textbook division from HarperCollins. Uh, so it was in the middle of a merger. So it was sort of, there was a lot of gallows humor and a lot of chaos and or actually literally moving buildings. Um, hey, I've, I've actually thought about that before. Like when a company moves into a new office building, how do you do that? You just hire movers and they just take everything out of one skyscraper and put it into another, essentially. Yeah. That seems like extremely tedious and difficult. Or I, I just felt like, I, I guess I guess it seems to me that like in, in my imagination of it, that maybe they just bought new stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the case. Uh, no, I remember a lot of boxes. Yeah. That's, okay. you know, it was a long time ago. That's about, about as much as I remember. Um, but, you know, everything felt exciting at that point. I was, you know, it's your, your first year really out on your own as an adult. The, the, the France years don't really count as adulthood, I don't think. I mean, that was sort of the first foray into trying to make it on your own and everything seems new and exciting and, and the stakes never seem too terribly high at that point. I don't think it's fun though. It's a good yeah. thing to do. I think to go abroad you learn a lot by doing that, even if it's just uh, by accident, right? Yeah. And I'm sure most of it is by accident. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. You learned French. That wasn't by accident. Well, no, no, not that part. So, okay. So then, um, graduate school and you have a, your PhD, correct? Yes. So you went like the full, academic route was that something that you planned to do or was it something that just sort of like once you got your master's you're like well maybe i'll move on or no the seed was planted when i was getting my master's at, at syracuse uh brian evanson came and, and did a uh, one semester visitors gig at syracuse uh and i you know i liked him a lot i mean he was, he was a terrific teacher uh mentor friend all of those things and he um was actually a real advocate for the the PhD program at Denver, where he was teaching at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, even though I, I th- well, no, I guess it wasn't until the following year that he left for Brown. But, but he, you know, he, I wouldn't say he plugged the program, but he had almost nothing but but nice things to say about it. And then it turned out to be true. I mean, Denver was a terrific place. Yeah, I went to Boulder, so I spent some time oh, yeah. on the Front Range. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good, it's a good city. It's grown up a lot even since I was there. Yeah, it's changed a ton. You know? Yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, I was just back there for the. Uh, I read it the tattered cover. Oh, okay. And, it's like uh, a homecoming. Yeah, it was. It's a little weird to to go to a place you lived for six years and and where you were happy actually, just eight months after you left it. Um, and why it, did you leave it? There was kind of a you know there's there's always a pull towards New York. Um, my family's there. My wife's family's um in Massachusetts. It's New York. Uh, a lot of the people we knew were leaving Denver. Um, I mean, I mean that's the. 
it's somewhat difficult to stay in the place you've gone to for grad school because the people you know, for the most part, end up leaving. Um, although a lot of them, I realized at that read at the tattered cover reading, are still there, and there, there's definitely part of me that wondered, oh, you know, did we make the right choice? So we went, you know, we went on a hike up in the Rockies, and and that's a beautiful thing about Denver or Boulder. I mean, you can spend all day hiking and then go home and you know catch a really great show at Dazzle Jazz Club or you know a Rockies game. There there aren't too many there aren't too many places like that in the country. Right. There aren't too many liberal places like that in the country, or at least in the Rocky Mountains. I mean, that's another nice thing I think about Denver and Boulder is that it's a little more politically diverse, at least. And I think a lot of I was just talking about this with somebody. It seems like uh, a lot of the most beautiful places in the country kind of belong by default to. Uh, I'm not sure I want to get into politics here, but, but you know, the to conservative right. Right, and, right. Well, I mean, Colorado. I mean, Colorado Springs is like yeah, extremely right wing. Oh yeah, know? yeah. I, I mean, Denver and Boulder are these sort of. I, I think they. Well, that's and you know that's interesting because that, there's a part of it. Like I come from the Midwest, which was like really you know I grew up in this like really conservative suburb, or at least what I perceived to be a really conservative suburb. And when I went to Colorado, I expected it to be a break from that. And Boulder obviously was, um, especially Boulder, you know, it's a very concentrated, like liberal Mecca or whatever. But I didn't realize that when you get up into the mountains, um, you know, the people who live up in the mountains, like that's, that's a, some of these people are very strange <laughs> mountain people. Not all of them, but I mean, there's just yeah. a lot of I, I, what's the what's the right word? I don't want to talk about it in like uh, too pejorative of a sense, but it's like I don't know. It's just kind of like uh, redneck, you know. I don't know if that's that might not be the right word to use, but well, I don't. know. I mean, my wife and I did make a U-turn uh, when we were up in the mountains. To, you know, we were, had gone the wrong way. And pulled into a driveway, and, and there was a big sign that said, "If you can read this, you're in range." Um, so, so, so I <laughs> no, think, but yeah. you know, and by yeah, exa- exactly, it's like yeah. that kind of thing. It's like yeah. it's like people who like don't tread on me. And I should say, I'm going to get shit for this because I've got so many friends who live up in mountain towns in Colorado. So <laughs> it's obviously like you know, there's there are plenty of exceptions to the rule. I'm just saying that there are a lot of little small towns up at elevation where people live up there and don't mix much with the outside world, you know? It's isolated. Yeah, I mean, I guess that might be, yeah, I'm sure that must be true. I, I didn't really know a whole lot of the mountain people, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's like, and the thing, too, I think, is that my preconception of it when I was going in was that anybody who lived up in the mountains must be, like, uh, you know, super open-minded and living some mm. sort of, You know, I was 19 <laughs> thinking about this, and, it's you know, of course it's not the case. Um, but it's a great place to live, you know. It's a beautiful place. It is. It's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And now you're in like Brooklyn, and yeah, you're back in the in the in the crazy city, and I'm yeah. in, you know, and I'm in Los Angeles, and yeah. How'd you end up in? Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to ask the graduate school. No, you yeah. can you can ask me anything. Okay. Um, graduate school, and then have been here surprisingly ever since. That's like 12 years almost. Oh yeah. You know, just sort of shocking to even think about, but um, and I like it, you know. That's the, that's the, you know, I didn't expect to like it. When I left Colorado, I thought to myself, like, I'm going to live somewhere uh, near mountains and it's going to be, you know, some sort of off the grid existence. Like I had that element to my, to my uh, personality, at least at that point in my life. And then Los Angeles, I came to for graduate school and, and um, wound up realizing that I like being in a city mm. like a lot. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe, you know, I had this conversation God, I think I had this conversation on the show recently, and I was talking to somebody about whether or not I would be able to enjoy living in, like, a super small town. 
I don't know. Like, like, do you ever think about that? Are you somebody who could do that? You think? I don't think I could do a small town. I, I, I think I could do. In, in my in my wildest fantasies, I think I could either be one of those mountain men or I could live in a city. But I don't think I could do the in between. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think the difference for me is that, or, or the similarity actually between living someplace removed and, and at, in the mountains and living in the city is that they're both dynamic spaces. I mean, you're something looks different every time you walk outside the door. And I think that, you know, that the problem with the suburbs for me, or at least my experience in New Jersey, for example, is that every time you walk out the front door, everything looks exactly the same. Um, okay. Well, so let's get to Jonah Man, and let's get okay. to the PhD. And, and are the two related? Were you working on this book yeah. while you were in school? Yes. Okay. So vaudeville. Okay. Uh, how did that flower in your imagination? Where does this come from? Where does your interest in it come from? It's always been there. Uh, my, my father was really into the Marx Brothers. Okay. And um, I got into the Marx Brothers then through him. I mean, at a very young age. I remember back before cable and, you know, the PBS channel in New York would have a Marx Brothers night, I think, once a month or, or something like that. And it was the one thing I was allowed to stay up late for. And uh, also being an only child, I think I, it was specifically them. I mean, I think I fantasized about that idea of growing up with five siblings who are sharing, you know, not only the same parents, but a career and an alternative, or what, what turned out to be an alternative lifestyle. And that's what really interested me. They started, my parents started giving me books about uh, the Marx Brothers, which turned out to be books about vaudeville. I mean, because I mean, Groucho, I think, was 40 before they made their first film. So, and, you know, they started performing when they were very young. So they, they had a, a long and, and rough existence before they made it. Uh, but that idea of traveling the country and performing in small theaters and uh, you know, a few of the things that that I take from the book actually, well, there's, there's one scene in particular that comes out of Harpo Speaks. Uh, there, there was a time they were playing at a town in Texas, actually, and they were on stage, and everybody in the theater just got up and jettisoned out, uh, and then came back about ten or fifteen minutes later, and they found out that it had there'd been a runaway mule in the town, and it had been kicking out the bank window, and and everybody had left to sort of corral it and watch people try to corral it. And, and, you know, there were a lot of experiences like that and a lot of very body experiences too. They weren't, they weren't choir boys. Well, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's such an, it's such a, um, I don't know. What's the word? It's a eccentric, you know, for somebody, yeah. uh, of our generation to be this into the Marx brothers and to be that. Oh, oh eccentric for, for yeah, me. Yeah, I think okay. so. Right? I thought you meant their lifestyle was eccentric. Well, that, that was. too, that yeah. too. But I mean, just, you know, I don't know, I don't know anybody who is that into the Marx brothers, you know? So, I mean, you clearly, um, if I'd been born 10 years later, I don't think it could have happened. And I don't think, and why was your dad so into it? God, I really don't know. I mean, he just liked uh, it. Yeah. I mean, maybe he had grown up a little bit more with it or was it? I'm totally, I mean, I don't know anything about it. I should know more, you know, I know, well, the, I know who the Marx brothers are, but like, yeah, I don't... well, and the, uh, you know, WC Fields and all of the, all of those people are sort of from the same school. Yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't had it. I mean, I can't talk to him about it cause he, my, my father passed away when I was uh, 19. So uh, no, when I was 17. So I, I don't know. I've, I've lost that. I, I would actually really like to ask him, you know, what got him into the Marx brothers, but I, I don't know. Yeah. They were no, just but... sort of always around when I was growing up. Well, you know, and I think I think that that happens though. Like you have these bonding experiences. Like there's certain like like sports fandom for me. Like I'm you know growing up like watching games with my dad or whatever it was. Like you know like I'm still a fan. I think those those things sort of solidify in you when you're a kid. 
right? And if mm. you get to stay up late, then I get to stay up late to watch football. Yeah, there you go. And so, you know, I still It's very it. important to little kids. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you can stay up past your bedtime, forget about it. Yeah. You know? Um, okay, so, like, what was the what was the process of writing it like? Like, you were working on it pretty, uh, you know, determinedly when you were in graduate school? Yes. Um, uh, I think the seed of it uh, was planned. There, there was a year between my MFA and graduate school and, and I think the idea was sort of germinating then and yeah then I worked uh, I worked on it all through those four years okay so what no what you did that the four years of the PhD yeah so what were you doing when you were getting your MFA like what did you write during that period uh short stories mostly probably only two or three of which are, are you know even worth mentioning that was yeah I'd, 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 I wasn't super productive in Syracuse you weren't. That's a, that's I mean, a, I tried, but it's a great MFA program, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the faculty is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and how did you get in? Do you, you you obviously submitted some short fiction or something? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just went through the application process, and um, I was actually waitlisted, but I was the first person on the waitlist. So. Uh, so and then, and so you had uh, you said Evanson was your one of your visiting professors. Yes. And who else did you study with there? Uh. Well, when I got to Syracuse, it was uh, there were two faculty members leaving. Right when I got there, uh, Juno Diaz and uh, Mary Caponegro were both leaving. So there was a, a sort of a rotation of visiting writers, and they were all fantastic. Um, Gary Lutz, uh, I, I took a workshop with him that I, I still count as one of the most valuable workshops I've, I've ever had. Why? Because. For a prose writer, he focuses on this on the sentence in a way that very few people do, even in a workshop. It was uh, very much language driven, and to the point where you know, he would he would underline a word and say, "Well, is this the best word for this slot in the sentence? Does it pick up on a sound, or, or does it resonate in some way with another word in this sentence?" Um, so he really hit things at a micro level at, at a, in a way that most teachers aren't willing to do um, because it's a lot. Well, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. How many students were in a class there? It was like small, 10, 12? Oh, smaller than smaller than that for the core classes. Uh-huh. Uh, there's uh, six people per workshop. Gary Lutz's workshop was a um, might have been just a little bit bigger than that. Uh, I'm just I'm thinking of it as a former teacher, like grading like that with that level mm-hmm. of intensity. It's like a lot, it's a lot of work, you know. <laughs> well, I think he was. I think Gary was really excited to be there because I think he was teaching comp in Pittsburgh at the time. Oh, okay, yeah, it's much yeah. Fun, it's much more fun to teach creative writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so okay, so Gary was a big, you know, a big influence, and then who else did you study with? Uh, well, there was Brian. Uh, took a workshop with George Saunders. Uh, Mary Gateskill was one of the visiting writers. After I left, she, um, I think she joined the faculty, the core faculty, but I don't think she's there anymore. Um, and what was it like to take a, a class from George Saunders? Oh, he's great. I mean, he's one of you know, he's just one of the most generous people you'll ever meet of spirit, definitely. Um, I, I mean, I remember there was one. I was really floundering when I was in his workshop. Actually, I'd kind of lost uh, lost sight of what I. It, it's, it's easy to sort of get kicked out of gear in grad school and think you should be doing something other than what you're doing. And I was in one of those phases where I was sort of feeling my way around. And did you have like classmates who were just killing it that you were like, "Holy shit!" Like they're <laughs> so good. And did you have like that kind of thing happening? Compare and and despair. I'm not sure if it was a compare and despair thing, but there was definitely the despair part. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't do any comparing. It was just complete and focus better. on yeah. despair. Yeah. Uh, 
That, uh, that's a really tough question. Is it somehow easier to answer that question? I, I think for the, uh, for Denver than it would be for Syracuse. Um, but uh, you know, there are people doing very different things, and uh, yeah, I'm not really I'm not really sure where to go with that idea, actually. But yeah, uh, oh, I mean, there were definitely there were people in my class who, who. Well, I mean, are you competitive? I mean, you know what I'm saying? That because I think sometimes oh, yeah. sometimes in workshops there's com- you know competition among writers and trying to be. Uh, the best or trying to get the approval of the teacher. I mean, that stuff does happen, but I mean, it, you know, it doesn't seem like you were that engaged in it. Is that fair well, to say? I mean, I tried not to be, but Syracuse was definitely far more competitive in that way than the University of Denver. Um, the University of Denver seemed to have a wider range of aesthetics. So I, I don't think people felt they were directly in competition with one another. Right. Everyone's sort of on their own track. Yeah. Um, Plus, plus, by the time you get to the PhD, I actually thought that you know the MFA was a good warm up for the PhD. I mean, I felt sort of more. I think there should almost be a class on taking a workshop before you take a workshop. And in some <laughs> ways, I feel like the master's was that. And then by the time I got to Denver, I felt maybe a little bit more comfortable about how to help other people write the stories they wanted to write. Yeah, um, like that's a good point. Like, because sometimes workshops can be just such a dud, and a lot of it, it comes down to just. Uh, the quality of the read that you get from people and then the mm-hmm. quality of the feedback that you get. Um, what, do you, what do you think is the key to a good workshop, you know, uh, both on the side of the moderator or the teacher who's running the workshop? And then, how, you know, what's a good way to participate? Well, that's a great question, but I, I think it depends somewhat on, on the setting. For example, I mean, the first workshops I took were at the West Side Y in New York. And, you know, in an, a sort of adult learner class, I guess you would call it, that that's not a track for a degree or, or that kind of thing. I think as the teacher or as a classmate, you at that point really have to focus on, on helping people write the story you perceive they, you, you think they're trying to write um, because there'd be people in there working on science fiction uh, stories and other people trying to be the next Faulkner. And uh, you know, there, there was just such a wide mix that, um, and, and there were people who weren't, you know, aspiring professionals in any way who, who just wanted to write stories so in, in that kind of a class, I think you you really have to uh, focus on what it is that the particular student is doing and try to help them do it. And that's probably always true. Uh, well, there's got to be like a creative empathy, you know, like you've got yeah. you, you got to be able to help, like just like you're saying, like the, the problem I've, I've found on my end when I'm trying to critique somebody is that I'm like, oh, this is how I would do it. Mm. But you have to restrain that that's, part of yourself yeah. and, and help them try to do it the way that they're doing it. And it's just it's not easy to do it. And what it taught me is that editing is a skill every bit as much as writing is a skill. And so there are a lot of really good writers who are really bad editors, you know, yeah. and vice versa, obviously. Yeah, I think you just said it perfectly. And I think that's the thing that can uh, derail a workshop the fastest is somebody trying to turn your work into their work. Right. And and I think that happens in grad school. And so did you, did you prefer the experience? I mean, obviously you preferred the workshop experience at Denver because you had, what, more experience with it, a better group? Uh, I think I was more comfortable in my skin at, at that point, uh, and and it wasn't a better group, by you know by any means. I mean, it's not a question of better or worse, uh, but in terms of the aesthetic, it was a more diverse group. So, you know, there, there, there's no question of trying to turn someone's experimental fiction into a straightforward narrative or vice versa. And I felt 
uh, it was also a slightly older group. I mean, obviously, but everybody had their masters already, so people were closer to thirty or thirty-five or even forty right. um, than they were to twenty. And, and and so I think they'd, they'd gotten over that initial stage of sort of wanting to be the class badass and you know the person who was going <laughs> to make it and publish in the New Yorker, right? And, and that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, I think you know there, there's just sort of a natural maturity that's that's happened by the time you've gotten to that stage. And so why were you there? Like, were you there because you wanted to go on to a career in academia, or were you just trying to find... Like, tell me the truth. Were you doing it it more because you really wanted to go on to teach, or were you doing it because you felt like remaining in an advanced degree program would give you the shelter that you needed to continue to work on your fiction? What was more important? They were both both important, I mean, honestly. Yeah, there were... were, uh, It was kind of a confluence of things. One is definitely not having to reenter the workforce in any sort of nine-to-five way. I mean, that was hugely important to me. Uh, Both in in the immediate sense of, okay, I'm in a PhD program, I have funding, um, and this is great. Also in the sense of being able to get a teaching job afterwards, because I I did not thrive in the nine-to-five publishing setting. That was really not for me, and and that's one thing I I carried forward. So, So teaching to me is a much, much, much better option. So I wanted to secure that part of my life. Uh, no, so are you uh, teaching in New York now? I'm teaching entirely online, actually, now, which is nothing I ever would have anticipated. Right. Um, but that's really what permitted my wife and I to move back to New York, was being able to get a job teaching online. For whom? Um, actually, for the school I was adjuncting for sort of moonlighting with, I guess, while I was doing my PhD, the um, Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. Okay, yeah. No, the, yeah. But you know what? There's so many uh, online courses nowadays. Like, it's really blowing up. I mean, it's like, I've, I've, you know, the sponsor for the show, UCLA Extension, mm. um, you know, they do uh, online courses constantly. You know, you can also obviously do them in person. But, yeah, um, you know, there's going to be like a huge percentage of students, it looks like, in the future who are going to be taking, you know, a large chunk of college courses online. Yeah, I and mean, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me that all major universities are offering online courses at this point. Uh, so yeah, so, so back to your question, and then uh, there, there were some other things too. I um, one thing I felt I didn't get in the MFA program, and, and it's not a knock on Syracuse. I think this would be the nature of any MFA program. Uh, was a real sense of the history of literature. I mean, I felt like there were huge gaps in my education that I, I wanted to fill, or at least attempt to fill, or at least be able to. Um, you know, speak to in, in some way or another. So so I wanted to do, I mean, the core courses, actually, because at, at the University of Denver, you take pretty much the same course load as, you know, the literature students, but you're also taking workshops, but you, you don't have to do the academic dissertation. I mean, that's, you, you do a creative dissertation. But that was really important to me, too, and I don't Just wanna, to do the reading? Yeah, I mean, just, just to have, well, to do the reading and, and, but I mean, to do it with people who really knew their stuff. Um, that was important to me as well. No, that yeah, I feel like I feel like a deficient in so many ways. Like there's so many books I have not read. It makes me anxious to go into a bookstore sometimes and look at them and be like, "Oh shit," you know? Yeah, and and probably still only scratch the very surface. Well, that's the thing. You can't I mean you know even the person who's the you know the most well read still has a long way to go. I mean, there's no yeah, it's bottomless. Well, didn't I could be wrong about this, but didn't Harold Bloom figure out that it's no longer possible to read the canon in a single lifetime? I think he tried to calculate how many pages. Um, there, there would be just on sort of the most... And is the canon actually defined, like, in a finite way? I, I think... 
he tried to pick things that you know nobody would dispute, like Don Quixote and right. you know the, those kinds of things. And if you put them all back to back, I think it would take a hundred years. I, I don't remember uh, making that up, but I think he figured out that you couldn't do it in one human lifetime so, any so longer. Do you have the kind of brain and the kind of receptiveness to be able to work your way through a book like Don Quixote, even if you don't like it? In, like, grad, in grad school, I did. I don't know that I would now. Okay, because I can't do that. Like, I can try to read something that I know I'm supposed to have read, mm. but if it doesn't engage me, I can't do it. Well, I think for me now, it would depend on why I don't like it. If I don't like it because I think it's bad, or because I think the writing is bad. If, if the sentence level writing is bad, then I'll set it aside. And, and but isn't it bad if it, it doesn't again. engage you? Or no, are you talking about like you can admire its construction or something like that? Yeah, there's still th- there are things you can learn from it. I guess maybe that's the question. If I feel like I'm not learning anything from a book, because it, like most writers, I think I read like a predator. I mean, I'm always looking for uh, how a book is put together. There's always a, a critical part of your mind that's engaged when you're when you're reading a book. And I guess maybe that's it. If that part is turned off, if I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it in that way, then then I'll set it aside. Right, right. So, who are some authors for you that were you know have had a huge influence? Like, who do you really like? Oh, there's some, there's so many, and the, f- the funny thing is, but like it's, formative authors, I, t- form- I should say. Well, yeah, it's funny because I feel like I'm being formed in a different way now with this new book I'm working on by a new set of authors. But yeah, um, before certainly it was you know Cormac McCarthy, uh, Brian Evanson actually was, was a huge influence. Um, Paul Bowles, uh, really like something I really like about Paul Bowles is that he's one of the few writers I can think of who's a very different writer when he's working on short stories and when he's working on a novel. How uh, so? There's almost no interiority at all in the short stories. And in the novels, they're still in the third person and they're still very dark and you still feel this this distance. Um, but the, the, there's certain kinds of human emotion that he can get sort of on the head of a pin. And in, in particular, that sort of feeling of dislocation or feeling like the world is sort of out there and you're in it but not a part of it. I think um, I think a spider's web in particular that came through really well, and of course the sheltering sky. Um, he, he's been a favorite for a, a long time. Like back to when you were a kid? No, not back that far. So back, back to my twenties, I would say. When I was a kid, it was uh, James Baldwin, whose um, whose work I still like a lot, and whose nonfiction, though I think now as an adult, I, I would say is some of the best nonfiction I've ever read. Yeah, but, me too. I, yeah. I'm a huge James Baldwin fan. Yeah, he's super strong. Yeah, and it's uh, it can be a little discouraging teaching him sometimes, though, because a lot of, it, I mean, stories where you just every every sentence you feel, um, I don't know, just just the sort of heightened aliveness, and you kind of get these blank faces staring back at you. Uh, some of the some of the classes here, he just doesn't resonate the way that I would think that he would. Yeah, isn't that disappointing? I mean, yeah. they happen not only in an academic context, but just when you really like something and you hand it to somebody and they're like, yeah. eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially with an essay like. Um, Oh, what's the one where he goes up to that? The really famous one where he goes up to the cabin in in Switzerland and he's comparing the two kinds of racism, oh, the American racism and then sort of the racism of a village that's literally never seen a black person before. Right. Uh, I mean, that essay just, just I think, is one of the most beautifully written uh, pieces of literature I've ever picked up. And, and the kids are like, eh, you know, racism's over. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't really think this affects our generation. Uh, you know, it's, it's just still the sentences. Um, yeah. And of course it does affect them. They just don't realize it. 
So what about uh, your teaching style? Like, how do you how do you teach? I mean, if you're if you're online, what are you like staring at a computer screen? Yeah, well, the online thing is still kind of new to me. Yeah, um, I mean, I was in the classroom for far longer than oh, right. online. Okay, so in the classroom, what kind of teacher are you? And then, what kind of teacher are you on the computer? <laughs> um, it's funny. I think I become a completely different person when I when I'm in front of a classroom. Um, it's one of the few times in my life when I, I actually feel very confident. I think, I mean, I second guess myself terribly after every class, but but in the moment, I, I feel I usually feel pretty on. Uh, and, and, and as opposed to in like other parts of your life where you feel off, <laughs> um, yeah, you're good. Uh, y- yeah, probably. Um, what do you mean? Like, are you socially awkward? Or I do you, think, or I, do think you- I, well, I'm not sure how I come across to other people, but I definitely feel, um, sort of, you know, I've never gotten over the shyness thing. Or, you were shy as a kid. I mean, how oh shy? yeah. Oh, you were. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> Well, why would you? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So what did the, how did that manifest? We're talking like you just would, in groups, you wouldn't introduce yourself, that kind of stuff. I mean... Well, no, I mean, it's never to a dysfunctional level. I just never oh, okay. really felt completely comfortable. Right. Uh, you know, at a party or, or a setting like that. I'm kind of that way. I mean, it depends. Yeah. I, I shouldn't say that. It's, it just depends. I can, yeah. I can, but I can go to, into a party and just be like, uh, where do I go? Yeah. I think a lot of people feel like that. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, I don't want to blow it up into some sort of grand disorder that i have that uh you know that's good that's good for ratings let's do that (laughs) yeah i I wish i could but i don't think i i don't think i legitimately can but anyway where were we no you were talking about how you have this sort of like confidence that the switch that goes off well it's not just a confidence i feel feel like uh my empathy ratchets up i mean i feel like if someone's a student in my class i really want to help them and i really want to make them do better and i really i tend to be very sarcastic but it's never about um it's never about their work or about their reading. I mean, I'm sarcastic about things like their personality, their personality and <laughs> what they're wearing. Uh, or, or, you know, when they do things like don't come to class for 13 weeks, uh, 13 consecutive weeks and make me <laughs> sit in the dean's office with them to fight over the fact that I failed them. You know, that, I mean, that, that kind of, I'm sarcastic about that kind of thing. But in terms of their engagement with the literature or with their writing, or I, I feel like I've become a much more supportive person than I am in real life. I think in real life I don't always have that kind of patience. Uh, and I tend to be a lot, I mean, I, I should work on this really, but I tend to be a lot more judgmental, I think, in real life. Whereas, um, and I think part of this too comes from teaching at an open enrollment school where students come in at all different levels. I mean, I've, I've had some students who I thought are absolutely brilliant and some, you know, some who, and, and I'm not being sarcastic here, I, I think we're really only functionally literate. I mean, really only one or two. Uh, and and uh, I had a lot of those. Oh, really? Well, I mean, but I was teaching comp. I mean, like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just I just feel like I uh, feel much more empathetic towards them than I do towards the larger population in my real life. <laughs> um, they're yours. They're your students. <laughs> they're part of your flock. Um, so what's what's been your publication experience? You know, this is your uh, your debut, oh. and like, how how has it gone for you? Like, has it has it matched expectations? Well, since, I mean, since it's come out, it's exceeded expectations. But getting it to come out in the first place, I mean, how, well, how has it exceeded expectations? Well, I was really nervous about the, I mean, honestly, really nervous about the reviews because I have some friends who I thought wrote terrific books and, and people just took pot shots at them. I mean, I, maybe, maybe that's less true now than it was, say, 10 years ago, but it, it seems to me like there are a lot of critics who are willing to take this thing that somebody's worked on for four years, five years, or, or however long it's been. And if they can get a good one-liner out of it in a zippy paragraph, you know, they'll, they'll sort of, 
just dashed the whole thing against the rocks. And, and I was really worried about that, but the reviews have been very kind and very generous so far. So that's that's been a huge relief. Um, it's been really well received, basically. Right, right. And so um, what about, uh, you know, like the book tour and the sales and all that kind of stuff? Like, do you find yourself obsessing or you find yourself enjoying the ride and content with the knowledge that this is out there and it's been generally well received and you're now working on the next one? Like, what's your state? Oh God, it depends on the time of day. Yeah. Um, I, I, seriously, I mean, it fluctuates quite a bit. I mean, there are some moments where I feel completely, uh, you know, jazzed up on ambition and, you know, I've got to make this one sell really well so that the next one will be well received. Um, there are other moments that, I mean, there are some moments, a few every day when I, I think I can kind of sit back and enjoy it and think, uh, as far as the, you know, the quote unquote book tour goes, it, it sounds kind of grandiose, but yeah, it is. I guess that's what it is. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sort of able to sit back and say, all right, I'm having a little adventure with this and we'll see how it goes. And it's all completely new to me. Um, you know, and I've, I've had both ends of the spectrum so far. I'm going to give a reading where sort of three people showed up and I think one of them literally, actually, I, I know because I talked to him afterwards, lived in the halfway house across the street. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's always nice when the bookstore is across from the halfway house. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, you know, I've had others where the room was packed and everybody seemed really into it. And it's, you know, it, it, so it's all new. It's all exciting. Yeah. Well, what did you do with the one with the three? You just get up there and read. I mean, what do you yeah. do? Well, I mean, I'm exaggerating. There, there were probably five people. Um, I mean, <laughs> Almost my, twice as many. Yeah, my wife was there. Uh, <laughs> and there was another reader. Um, yeah, yeah. I just get up and, and read. Um, I was really nervous for the first one at the tattered cover. Um, largely because I knew a lot of people in the audience, and it was the very first one. But you get I, the shaky hands? You do any of that? Uh, I don't know if that my hands shook, but I think my voice did for the first paragraph or two, and then I, I think it sort of went on from. I kind of hit my stride after that. But. I do have a, a, a secret. If you yeah. if you do ever get the shaky hands, uh, I guess I shouldn't say it's more really the shaky hands really apply when you're reading off a of paper because then yeah. the, the paper shakes. If you're yeah. holding a book, the book can kind of counterweight the shaky hands. Oh, that's. But uh, maybe that's why I didn't have shaky. Instead hands. of reading with paper, read on an e-reader because it's heavier. You can put it in your hand and you can scroll more easily mm -hmm. instead of dealing with pages. I yeah. found that that counteracts the shaky hands phenomenon. You know. Yeah, that's clever. Yeah, well, no, yeah. that's one of the good things about e-readers. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you had that too? Have you had the? I mean, I've gotten up in front of people before to read, and I've had the shaky hands. Yeah, yeah I've done that. But I mean, usually I'm able to tamp it down. It's like it's like just that initial burst of adrenaline yeah. that when you get up there, and yeah, yeah, eventually you settle. You know, you settle yourself. Yeah. But it feels weird to me. Like there's just a part of me. Like I can do it. Mm -hmm. And I can do it functionally, and I can do the best that I can, and I'm happy to do it or whatever. But there's a part of me that will always feel like it's strange to stand up in front of people and read aloud from your own book. Or from anyone else's book. No, I, I agree with you completely. I, I probably shouldn't be saying this while I'm still in the midst of my tour. But, <laughs> right. but I find reading's a really strange phenomenon. And I agree with Philip Larkin, who said, you know, if I wanted to read it out loud, I wouldn't have written it down. Um, I mean, for me personally, it's just not the relationship I want to have to the written word. Like, I, I like to be able to go back and savor a sentence um, you know, if I lose my place, I can, you, you know, if you lose your place at a reading, you can't catch up. Right. Um, that's yeah, my, that's my problem. I can't, yeah. I can't stay with it. You know, I have to be looking at it or I don't know if my brain yeah. is just dysfunctional. Yeah. Or, I feel terrible admitting that, but yeah, I'm yeah. the same way. I, uh, I think most people are. Yeah. And that's the thing that, okay, so this is it. This is where I like, and I think there are some people who can truly, and I think some people can really read. And then I think there are some people who they can get their hooks into it and they can sit there and they can listen and get mm. something out of it. But I think the overwhelming majority of people, when they're listening to long-form readings, 
lose the track and sit there pretending to still be following. And so it becomes an absurd process if I'm right, Mm. because you have all these people who show up and like, as you're reading, they're really just there to show support or enthusiasm for the work. But the actual, the actual process of reading and listening is uh, uh, charades. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I'm, I, again, I really feel like I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but um, <laughs> no, just, I, I, I realize that I, I make that assumption because when people come up to me afterwards at my reading or anybody else's and can actually quote from from what the person has been reading or talk about a specific detail, yeah. I'm always kind of s- stunned and really impressed by that person, oh, which yeah. means that I'm assuming that most of the audience <laughs> had just completely zoned out for right. the last half hour. I don't think, I mean, look, I, you know, I have some faith in humanity. I don't want to paint too dark a picture. I'm just saying that, like, uh, I think that a very good attention span and a very, you know, a very uh, highly developed ability to concentrate and focus on somebody reading aloud is rare. It's the exception rather than the rule. No, I, I agree. And that's what I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I found myself, you know, make, making my shopping list mentally. Well, you know, some <laughs> of the greatest writers of our generation have been standing 50 feet in front of me. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I hate that about myself, but I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's truer than most people would like to, to admit. admit. We just admitted yeah. it right here. Yeah, yeah. Although I do like Q&As. Those I find really interesting. Yeah, no, Q&A is great. And I think this is the other thing. I think authors who do readings tend to prefer the Q&A to the reading. I was much more relaxed yeah. during the Q&A, uh, during the Q&A at the tighter cover than I was during the reading part. Yeah. Because to me, that felt like teaching. Um, well, exactly. But there's also just the back and forth. Yeah. And there's like a, there's, it's more, there's, there's spontaneity. It's a yeah. conversation at that point, as opposed to, you know, somebody reciting uh, at you, which is a different experience entirely, you know? Yeah. And, and there are a few exceptions. George Saunders is a, a terrific reader. Mm-hmm. Um, he can actually sort of perform his work. And that's, that's the thing. I don't think most writers can, perform. I mean, I know I can, you know, perform it or, I mean, I would feel, feel silly trying. In fact, you're not going to start doing vaudeville. And, no, no, no. In <laughs> fact, sometimes I try to excise some of the dialogue when I'm reading because I just don't feel like that's, you know, it, it's hard to read from two different characters points of view. George Saunders can do that in different voices. Okay. So if you are at home though, and like, just kind of like, you know, people say they can't sing, but they sing in the shower. Yeah. Like are, when you're at home, can you do the voices and do the good dialogue? Cause like, I mean, if you're writing good dialogue, you have to be hearing it. Oh yeah. I can hear it. Yeah. Definitely. You just can't speak it. Yeah, and at least not in front of a crowd. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I haven't really tried at home in the way that you're suggesting. You've, but, never, um, you've never done shadow puppets? I've or n- <laughs> no, I've never done shadow puppets or anything like that. No, I definitely hear it. I mean, that's, dialogue is actually probably the part that comes easiest to me when I'm writing. No, me too. It's quickest. Yeah. Because it's like taking dictation, at least when it's going well. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But some people are really bad at it. I mean, some people who write for television, for example, and it should be, you know, their whole their whole metier it's, they they just can't do it i mean it comes out stilted and but but for yeah i, I do feel like that that's one thing i'm pretty confident about i think that dialogue comes pretty easily to me yeah but yeah. not reading it no but not reading it not doing the performance so what do you uh what's the idea what's the ideal career for you um, like look at looking into the future like if, <laughs> if you would be so bold as to like say what you hope to accomplish like do you have that kind of mapped out in your brain well, we're talking ideal here, right? No. Yeah. Like, yeah. Give yeah. me your ideal. What does the ideal future look like for you? I'd like to write full time and not not teach at all. No, I, I like teaching. I say, realizing that the people who employ me might be listening to this. I, you know, I, I, I do, but um, it would be it would be nice to sort of have that be supplement. I mean, it would be nice to make a living entirely from writing, and I've, I've become very. Uh, 
sort of my imagination has become kind of excited by this uh, discovering that John uh, John Banville and Benjamin Black are the same person. Um, you know that that he makes a career writing these mystery novels on the side while writing things that win Pulitzer's and Booker awards. Um, you know, some of some of the he's probably earmarked for a Nobel Prize at this point. So, do you think you're going to start doing stuff like that? Would you ever consider writing like genre fiction uh, on the side under a different name as a way to sort of subsidize the more uh, left of center or edgy literary fiction? Well, I really like mysteries. I, I mean, well, certainly, I mean, certain mysteries, not not the really pulpy ones, but uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, Dashiell Hammett, um, and, and you know Henning Mankell. Uh, some of the Benjamin Black books, some of them I, I thought were a little phoned in, but some, uh, you know, some of them. I, I mean, I like that stuff. So, yeah, I would definitely consider doing that. And I, have you started working on anything? And do you have a pen name? <laughs> uh, no and no. No and no. no. Uh, really just, just sort of kind of a fantasy in the back of my mind now. I, I mean, I want to finish. Are you, are you prolific? I mean, because it, it feels like to me, it's like, uh, for me... To write a, a book, let alone to be doing two different identities and working yeah. <laughs> like holy Jesus, there are some people who can just crank these things out clearly, but like for me, it's a very painstaking process. Oh yeah, it and takes forever. It's slow for yeah. me. Like so, you to to be able to do that, you're either you're either working all the time. I mean, all the time, mm. like twelve, fifteen hour days, seven days a week. It would seem like, or you're extremely fast, or I don't know how you even would do that. Well. I mean, I don't know if it's possible for, for me personally or, or not, but I was encouraged. I read an interview with Banville recently where he said he can write something like 60 pages worth of the genre fiction in the time it takes him to write one page of, of literary fiction. Christ. Um, that it's, you know, when you're writing the genre stuff, and I've heard this from other people. I mean, I think Raymond Chandler, he never duplicated this, but I think he wrote The Big Sleep, which was probably his best book, in something like three weeks, I want to say. Um, yeah. Uh, Simonon did the same. Sort of, he would pump something out in six months and then take the, you know, take a break and then come back to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, my hope would be that the genre fiction is actually more of a matter of craft and it, it could come out more quickly, more quickly. It's like a formula. Yeah. But this is, this is an entire fantasy we're talking about. Yeah, you know, there, we're dealing it. We're dealing not in written ideals. A word. <laughs> we're dealing in ideals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but are you working on something else? Yeah. What is yeah. that? Um, I'm working on a second novel that I, I think is very different than the first one. Um, in the way that it deals with interiority. I mean, it's largely an interior monologue. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said I feel like there's this new sort of foundation that's that's been forming based on who I've been reading since I wrote the first book. And So who's the foundation for this new one? Uh, Max Frisch. Um, not, uh, Mac, not his most famous, not, that really sh- the, not the really short one, but um, in particular, I'm not Stiller um, in Ganton Bean. Or Ganton Bine, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I mean, th- those two have been huge. And then I've been reading a lot of uh, Javier Marias recently, the Your Face Tomorrow trilogy. Um, and, and they're all essentially interior monologues. And I've always felt before like I had a really hard time with interiority. There was m- much more um, uh, in that kind of American school where you don't describe the emotion, but you sort of allow it to be evoked by the setting. And now I've gotten much more interested in dramatizing what goes on inside uh the brain and then and you know i feel like these are writers who really do it in an exciting way so so i feel like i've shifted directions a bit cool well um it's been great talking with you congratulations on jonah man oh thank you very much best of luck with the rest of your tour and uh reading aloud in front of people (laughs) thank you and good luck with the new book all right thanks a lot thanks for having me
Okay, you guys, that's it. That's the program. That is uh, Christopher Narosny. Go get his book. It is called Jonah Man. You can find Chris on the web at ChristopherNarosny.com. You can find him on Twitter at Chris Narosny. And he's on the Facebook as well. Don't forget, this show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed at OtherPeoplePod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, if you like the program, uh, I hope you will consider going over to iTunes to give it a nice rating and a nice review. Uh, that really does help the cause. And if you haven't subscribed to the show at iTunes yet, please do that. It is free of charge. Uh, and the show is also available at Stitcher at no cost if you are a Stitcher person. Please remember uh, that Theodore Roosevelt referred to Henry James as, quote, a miserable little snob and that Don Powell was buried in a potter's field. I think that's it for now. Uh, Yeah, that is it for now. I will be back again soon. Uh, Thank you very much, as always, for tuning in and listening. I hope you know how much I appreciate that. It is what makes this show possible. It can't happen without you. Uh, At this moment, I believe I'm going to go uh, try to uh, procure some more coffee. I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to go in for some more caffeine. I'm not afraid uh, to take this to... uh, another level. I think I'm going to freebase some coffee beans until my heart explodes. What do you think about that? (laughs) 